1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll come back to some specific verses. But I do want to read the whole chapter to sort of establish the context. And again, like last week, we're going to use the chapter to support what's being taught in the final verses. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul, again writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your Word and that you would add to it many more blessings. Father, I pray that you would help your servant to preach the Word faithfully, and I pray that as a church body, we would be enlightened, that we would be encouraged, and that we would be convicted of our sin, that we would be edified and, and persuaded to look to our brothers and sisters in love first in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So we have come to the end of sort of a four-part mini-series, I guess you could say, on the different types of sin. Last week, we, I used the term hamartiology, the study of sin. When we understand sin, the way the Bible describes sin, I believe we begin to understand ourselves as we truly are. When we understand sin, we see God's perfections a little more clearly because He is without all of our imperfections. When we understand sin, we begin to see the glory of Christ in all of His perfections, especially in His humanity, because the Bible says that He was tempted at all points, just like we are, and yet without sin. 
when we understand sin in all of these various categories, when we begin to realize all of our multiplied thousands of sins, we begin to understand the weight of the judgment and the wrath poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross because He took all of the sins or all of the wrath toward the sins of all of His people onto Himself on the cross. You see, the study of sin is very helpful for Christians, although it's not always very exciting. It's helpful, not so that we just become some sort of Christianized navel-gazers, constantly introspective, but it helps us understand what the author to the Hebrews would call so great a salvation. We begin to understand exactly what we have been saved from and what we've been saved to and by whom we've been saved and the means by which we've been saved. All of that, we, it becomes more clear when we just study sin and the different aspects of sin. So last week we looked at the first kind of what I've called particular sins. That is, deeds that are not always sinful, but in particular situations, with particular people, they become sinful. We studied that from Romans 14, 23, and we saw that as individuals, we must make sure that we live our lives as servants of Christ. Servants await orders. And so we don't simply carry out life however we please, but rather we do that which God has commanded us And if we are unsure, if we're not clear whether we should act or not, we're not persuaded and convinced that it is godly, then we stop. We wait. We don't act. You remember the the primary principle was when in doubt, don't. Just wait. Now today we're taking this same sort of idea of sins against conscience and we're sort of broadening its scope to the corporate body, the church, So if last week was sins against conscience, today we could entitle it sins against another's conscience. So our focus today, we read this whole chapter, but our focus is just going to be verses 10 through 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'll read them again. Verse 10, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now Paul is writing here to the church that had been gathered in the city of Corinth. Corinth has been described by some commentators as a bustling commercial and industrial center. Corinth was located at an intersection or near an intersection of very popular, well-traveled trade routes. And so this cosmopolitan city of commerce and business and artistry and culture would draw people from all over the known world into this singular city. Corinth had a reputation for luxury and wealth, indulgence in sensual pleasures, and opportunities to participate in almost any kind of wickedness you could imagine, any kind of vice for the right price. That was Corinth. So in our terminology, imagine a city that is bustling with what we might call holiday cheer, 
all year round. Throw into that city the rampant materialism of a Beverly Hills, the decadence of a Las Vegas, and the lewdness of the red light district of Amsterdam, all in one city. That was the city of Corinth. Corinth was also well known for its many temples to pagan deities. The most popular was the temple to Aphrodite, the, the goddess of love and fertility and beauty. This temple is supposed to have had at least a thousand temple prostitutes who would simply wait for men to come and worship in their bed, worship the goddess Aphrodite. Other temples were also the temples for Apollo, Athena, Demeter, and Kor, Egyptian gods Isis and Serapic, and one for a god named Asclepios, the supposed god of healing and medicine. People would come to be healed of diseases. And so again, to come and worship these gods in these temples was to solicit prostitutes, sacrifice animals, and eat the foods sacrificed to those gods as a way of uniting your spirit with the gods. That was how they would worship. So then we come to 1 Corinthians. This is the first letter that we have that the Apostle Paul wrote to this gathering of Christians that were settled in this wicked city. And when we read this letter, especially when we get to chapter 7, we see an obvious theme. As in all of his epistles, Paul writes to explain doctrine. Doctrine and practice. Doctrine and practice. Here's what you believe, and here's how you should live. But in this letter, specifically, we see a theme that centers around the phrase, now concerning. In chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Chapter 7 and verse 25, now concerning the betrothed. Chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. Chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. Chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints. Here's the theme. This church had written Paul letters of interrogation, questioning him, asking him, how do we live? Just like we saw last week at the church in Rome, there were Jewish converts and Gentile converts. They're coming into one body of Christians. It's all new to them, and so they don't know how they should act, how should they handle this issue or that issue as they learn to live together as a church body. So one of the questions that we see being addressed here, specifically in verse 1 of chapter 8, concerns food offered to idols. So the question was probably something like this. Dear Paul, we've got a question about the foods, the meat that had been sacrificed to idols in these temples. Some of us think that it's okay to eat this meat. Others are having an issue with it. What should we do? Is it okay to eat it? Is it not okay? What say you? We, we, they, they wanted the, the input and the wisdom of the man who had planted the church there. And so in chapter 8, verse 1, he begins to answer this question, now concerning food offered to idols. Now I want you to see how Paul answers this question. And all of this is by way of introduction why I'm going so fast. I want, to, I want you to see how he answers the question because he doesn't just come right out and say, 
don't eat or do eat. He explains the underlying issue beneath their questions first and the problems that these things are causing in the church. So in verses 1 through 3, he explains that the topic at hand that you really need to worry about is, the, is an issue of knowledge or liberty versus love for each other. That's where you need to start. And then in verses 4 through 6, he begins to break this issue down. Verses 4 through 6, he explains the, the knowledge or liberty side. This is this group. This is how they would view the situation. Then in verses 7 through 9, he explains the perspective of love for weaker brothers. So you've got these two sides, knowledge versus love. And then in verses 10 through 13, he gives a hypothetical situation and a hypothetical outcome to explain the reality of the situation or the problem. And we're going to come back to those sections as we walk through these, these last several verses. We should also know that Paul doesn't answer their question until chapter 10, verses 14 and following. Um, and, and you can look there very quickly. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And in verse 21, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. They're contradictory. He, he doesn't get to the answer until then. Right now, he wants these Corinthian Christians to know that the issue, the most important thing, is that you love each other and that love for each other should influence how you approach these situations. So there's not an argument. We love each other, therefore, if this causes a problem, then I'll drop my position. The love for the brothers is the most important thing. We sort of see this spelled out this, this, the real issue there in verse 9 of chapter 8 where he says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That's his main point. Again, he's not to the issue of whether or not you may eat or not eat in these temples. He's explaining the foundational issue. Do not let your liberties become stumbling blocks to the weak. Now remember last week we learned about those who are weak in faith in Romans 14. To be weak in faith merely means you're not clearly established. You're not clearly convinced of your freedoms in Christ. You're not a lesser Christian. You're just, you're, you doubt or you wonder. You're still studying. You're still questioning. You're just not quite sure about this issue or that issue. So you're considered weak in that regard. Weak in belief. And so with regard to divisions in the church that may be caused by the exercise of freedom, Paul introduces this hypothetical scenario in verses 10 through 12 to enforce and reconcile verses 9 and verse 1. Because in verse 1 he says, we, we have knowledge. And then he goes on to explain, there are many mature Christians who understand what they may and may not do. But in verse 9 he says, you can't make another brother stumble. Love for the brethren must be the consuming motivation behind these circumstances. So again, the train of thought goes like this. Verses 1 through 3, even though we have freedom in Christ, our goal is to love other Christians. Verses 4 through 6, we know these idols are not real gods because there's only one God. Verses 7 through 9, but not everyone understands that. So take care not 
to cause them to stumble. Consider their growth above your liberties. Again, he's not answering their question yet. And then in verses 10 through 12, it's as if he's saying, let's just think about this for a second. Think about what it would mean for you to continue to exercise any freedom you have in Christ at the risk of wounding a brother's faith. And so that's what I want to do is use this hypothetical scenario, verses 10 through 12, to help us understand the gravity of exercising our freedoms, our liberties, at the risk of causing another Christian to stumble. And I want to do that under three headings. If you have your sermon guide there, you can see them. Uh, verse 10, a warning to the informed. And then verse 11, the destruction of a brother. And then verse three or verse 12, sins against Christ. A warning to the informed, destruction of a brother, and sins against Christ. So, first in verse 10, a warning to the informed. Paul says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge... So he's addressing those who have knowledge. He's speaking of the spiritually mature. In verse 1, he said, all of us have knowledge. And then he contrasts that knowledge that we think we have with love. He says that knowledge, it, it just tends to puff up if we don't use it properly. That's how it sort of unfolds throughout the chapter. But in verses 4 through 6, he goes into detail as to what this knowledge is. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now notice there in verse 4 he says, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, we have a knowledge. We understand this. This is the knowledge that the mature believers would have had. Idols are not really gods. There's only one true God. Sure, we have many things that we call gods, and we might refer to people as lords, but in reality, there's only one God. We know this. So the knowledge here is a clear understanding of monotheism. These mature Christians understand all this. They get it clearly. For us, most of us, I'm assuming, not coming out of any type of polytheism, we understand this. We, we come very easily at the idea there's only one God. But for these people, it would have been more difficult. So Paul is saying in verse 10, if anyone sees you who have this clear understanding of monotheism and of the absurdity of idol worship, and he goes on, eating in an idol's temple. Remember the setting. We're in Corinth, a city littered with temples to pagan deities. Now these temples were not like our worship buildings where you go in the, the door and shut it and pull down the blinds. You've seen Greco-Roman architecture, large columns holding up a roof, and that's it. So when people would walk through the town, you could see inside watching people worship these false gods, participating in uh, their pagan rituals. They could look right in and see it. And so, as one commentator says, 
the act of eating in an idol's temple in Corinth could hardly be misconstrued as, as something, could hardly be misunderstood. You knew. You see somebody in temple, you know what they're doing. They're worshiping in an idol's temple. They're, 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 they're taking part in this religious ritual. So Paul says, if anyone sees you who have this clear understanding of monotheism, worshiping or eating in an idol's temple. So we have a person who's mature in their faith. They understand there's only one God. They understand these temples are just man-made structures. They don't mean anything to me. So I'm going to go in here and I'm going to grab a bite to eat. And they're in this temple and he's eating this meat. It was sacrificed to an idol, but he don't care. The idol's are not real. It doesn't mean anything to him. But a younger believer walks by. Perhaps he was just born again out of this pagan religion yesterday. And he was told when he heard the gospel that these idols are nothing, that you must turn from idols and worship the living God. Put this stuff away, repent. And then he looks and he sees a mature older believer eating in the idol's temple. What's he to think? Well, this is Paul's question. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? The he there is the weaker brother. It says his conscience is weak. That is, with regard to his inner belief and knowledge, he's weak. He doesn't have a whole lot to work with yet. He's sort of leaning on the, the leadership and the teaching of more mature Christians. In verse 7, Paul says, Not all possess this knowledge, and he's describing the weaker brother, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak, is defiled. So that weaker brother has this attitude. Because of his past, because of his former idolatry, his conscience is lacking in this knowledge. He believes this is actually food sacrificed to a real God. It might be a false God, but it's a real God. It's a pagan deity. He believes that the idols are real. In other words, he has faith that this is real. And so if he eats, because of his faith, he actually participates in idol worship. Now you, hopefully you remember this from when we studied the Lord's Supper. That it is faith that appropriates Christ. Faith that takes hold of Christ, uniting us to him and he to us. It brings us into communion. Anybody can eat bread and drink juice. But when Christians do it in faith, and understanding, we actually commune with Christ through His Holy Spirit. Paul says in chapter 10, it's the same with demons. When these pagans come to the table of demons, believing that they are truly worshiping demons, their soul is somehow joined and takes fellowship or participates with demons. So that's what's happening. It's very dangerous for someone who believes that the idols are real to continue doing this because they are uniting themselves in a spiritual way with demons. Paul says, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Now, when we hear the word encouraged, we think of words of encouragement. Hey, buddy, good job. That's not really helpful because the word encourage means to, to build up or to be edified to be stimulated towards a certain position or action or mindset. It is to be persuaded. 
And so Paul, speaking of the one who's weak in faith, says, will he not be persuaded? Will he not be sort of nudged in the direction of eating this food? If he's a more mature believer doing it, he would be persuaded to try to somehow juggle his Christianity, his newfound faith with his, his old paganism because he doesn't understand that you can't do both. And the answer to this rhetorical question is an obvious yes. That's what Paul's trying to get across. Yes. Here's the warning, mature Christians. If you're mature in your faith, be careful that your freedoms do not lead to another brother's failure. That freedom might be fine to exercise over here, but as soon as you go over here and there's a weaker brother who might see it, it becomes sin because you could cause them to stumble. That wisdom that you have, that freedom, this is a blessing from God and it allows you some liberties that other Christians may not feel that they have the right to observe. That's something that you have to take very seriously, not flippantly, not lightly, very seriously. Christian liberties are not just a license to do as you please because, well, the Bible don't say I can't. It's your responsibility, responsibility to make sure that your liberties do not become the object of another person's moral collapse. That's the warning. He gives it here in the form of a question, but the warning is this. Be warned. These things that you're doing, they have spiritual consequences. As with all Christian living, to whom much has been given, of them much will be required. You must steward your freedoms, your liberties well by considering others first. So that's the first thing we see is this warning to the informed, to the, the knowledgeable, the mature. Then in verse 11, we come to the second heading, the destruction of a brother. The destruction of a brother. What is the potential outcome of this hypothetical scenario Paul gives? Well, he says, verse 11, And so by your knowledge, again, that's your, your clear understanding of, in this case, monotheism, that freedom that it gives you, the liberties that you have, by your knowledge or by means of your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed. Now think about how strong that language is. They're destroyed by means of your knowledge. So in Paul's hypothetical scenario, your knowledge, your liberty, which leads you to exercise a particular freedom that you felt like you had in Christ, has now become the means by which a weaker brother is destroyed. Now in verse 7, Paul says that these weaker brothers, if they eat food offered to idols, their conscience being weak, they eat it as really offered to an idol, their conscience is defiled. Their conscience, their inner knowledge, their inner guiding principle becomes tainted or stained. It becomes dirty. Why is that? Well, think about what would be going on in the mind of a weaker brother. He's, he's, he's a new Christian. He's been told, turn from the idols. Turn from paganism, worship the living God. Inside he knows, I should not do this thing. I ought not to do it. We saw last week that if you know that, 
or you are inclined to think that even in the least little bit, and you do it, you're sinning. But this brother, he goes ahead and he does what he ought not to do, and he knows that he ought not to do because he saw a more mature Christian doing it, and he thought, well, hey, if he gets to do it, then why can't I do it? Now, the next time his conscience comes and tries to stop him, he's already built up a little bit of a, of a conditioning. He's already conditioned just a tad to ignore it. He's, he's already been taught by the mature believer that, well, your conscience is not always right. You, can, you, you might have to circumvent your conscience sometimes. Now, that process is going to get easier and easier and easier until the point where that inner leading, that inner conscience means nothing. You, you completely disregard it. And so you constantly live, this weaker brother would constantly live doing what ought not to be done, having gotten used to ignoring his conscience. Now what would we say about someone who professes to be a Christian, but lives their lives according to every licentious desire that comes into their minds or they see lived out in front of them. We would say they're lost. That's not a Christian. That's not what Christians do. Eventually, we would say, if they continue down this path, they will be destroyed. So by using this strong language, Paul is, is taking his readers to the most extreme, logical end of this kind of behavior. We must remember that one of the means of grace by which God preserves His people, He, he doesn't just say, well, you're saved, that's it, boom, you're done, now go to heaven. No, He preserves us. He uses means of grace to keep us. And one of those means of grace is the constant warnings and rebukes and encouragements that come from the local bodies or local body of Believers, in other words, our actions toward one another could lead to the preservation or the destruction of a person. Now, how does that work? And, you know, the, the God is sovereign over all things. Well, we can't really explain it. We just know this is the means He has ordained to keep His people. And so, the opposite is also true. Without these warnings without these rebukes, without these encouragements, or with a negative influence, a person could slip away proving themselves to have never been saved because we didn't do our job. Again, how does that work with God's sovereignty and human responsibility? We, we, our minds struggle to reconcile these things, but the Bible clearly teaches them. For example, Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers. Sounds like he's talking to Christians. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil heart, an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that, the purpose being, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He goes on to say, for we know that we've come to the faith, and this is a paraphrase, we know that we've come to share in this salvation, if we make it all the way to the end. If we don't, we prove we had never been saved. So, we have to remember, Paul's talking to Christians. He's talking to those who are assumed to be true believers, but they have a weak conscience. And so he says, he describes this brother in this way. 
Verse 11, by your knowledge, this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Now, for some of us, the L starts rearing up on its hind legs as soon as we begin to imagine that one for whom Christ died could somehow be destroyed or lost forever. That's a Calvinist joke, by the way. Paul is not giving a teaching on the doctrine or the extent of the atonement here. He's giving a hypothetical scenario. He wants mature believers to consider deeply exactly what's happening and how they act around the weaker brothers. And so he uses the greatest possible assessment of a weak one. Jesus died for them. And he wants to show the mature believers how awful it must be for you to imagine that Jesus would die for them, but you won't give up meat for them. In other words, he's saying as far as you or I or anyone knows, our Lord Jesus Christ died to purchase this person. And you won't give up your liberty to help them grow? What does that say about you? See, this explains the... The, the, the evil that has to take place in the heart and the mind of a supposed mature believer should they decide to carry out their liberties in such a way as to possibly cause a weaker brother to stumble. In short, your liberties are taking a higher place in your heart than the growth and the discipleship and ultimately the eternal salvation of a brother. He's saying you would rather cling to your freedom and see a brother destroyed than to give it up for their sake. And if that's your mindset, your soul is the one at risk. If you don't care enough about your brothers and sisters in Christ to give up things, what does that say about you? And so, in these circumstances, we must be sure that the display of our maturity does not become the downfall of a brother's morality. We may not sin against a brother or sister in Christ in this way. We, we, we're not allowed to. So we see there the destruction of a brother. Again, I believe hyperbolic, it's hyperbole used to explain the reality of what would be happening here. And then in verse 12, we have the third heading, sins against Christ. When I talk about sins against another brother or sister, perhaps we might begin to think that we're going a little too far. It's a little extreme. If I say, you better be careful of your soul. If you're living this way, and not caring about your brothers and sisters, you should fear. You might think, well, that's a little extreme. But notice what Paul says in verse 12. Thus, or in so doing, thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. We've already established that's what's happening. Wounding their conscience, I believe, is Paul coming back to the reality of the situation. We do not ruin their ability to think. We do not damn their everlasting soul because we acted in one way or another at one time, but we do wound their conscience. We hurt them a little. We take a small jab, which multiplied over time could do great harm. That's the logical conclusion. Over time, this could lead to something bad. Sinning against your brother and wounding in his conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. How is it that sinning against a, a brother or sister, another Christian, 
is the same as sinning against Christ. Well, I hope you see we've come full circle to where we began in Matthew 18 and verse 5. Whoever receives one of these little ones in my name because of my union with them and theirs with me receives me, Jesus said. They're members of my body. We're joined to Him from all eternity by His Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus could say in Matthew 25, 40, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to be. Again, not a verse about social justice, but about our care for other Christians. This is why Jesus could say in Acts chapter 9, when Paul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. As you drag off Christians to prison, you're persecuting Jesus. We are members of Christ through our spiritual union with Him. If we are to grow into maturity as a church, we must understand that. We are members of each other. We're one body. And so when you take into your hands by signing a church covenant, the maturity or the, the spiritual growth and or demise of other Christians, and you act in such a way as to harm them or to cause them to stumble, you wound their conscience and you're sinning against Christ. And he takes that very seriously. They're not just a new believer. It's not just an accident. You sin against one of these little ones for whom Christ died. And Jesus says, if you're going to do that, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and it rolled off of the bow of a ship into the deepest part of the ocean than to continue living that way. Wounding their conscience. Wounding the conscience of a weaker brother is an offense against Christ. It is rebellion against God. It is a transgression of God's law. It is trespassing across the moral boundary that God has established. Wounding the conscience of another Christian by your freedom is sin. The exercise of liberty to the extent that it stunts the growth of another Christian is sin against the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. So these sins against conscience are not just for us, they're for others. Now, having covered two categories, universal and particular sins, in four weeks with four separate texts, let's come back very quickly to the application, or a couple of the application points that we started in Matthew 18.7. Here's what we need to understand again. Now that we know that sin is a transgression of God's law, that any time we know to do right and do it not, it's a sin. When we sin against our conscience not being fully persuaded, or when we sin against the conscience of another and cause them to stumble, we must expect in this world temptations to sin. We must be alert. Avoid laxity. Don't let your guard down. You see, the world hates God's law, despises anyone who would say that there is an objective standard. And yet one of the marks of a true Christian is that you love and delight in God's law. The world is antithetical to Christianity. But we live in the world, so we must expect the world and our daily activities to present us with constant opportunities 
to break God's law, to avoid God's commands, to sin against our conscience, to sin against the conscience of another, all of the time, it's always there. See, there are many who go about their lives as if it should be easy, the Christian life should be without difficulty, and a temptation to sin or a struggle, well, that's an exception. That, that's, that's odd. That's not normal. When we, when we read the Scriptures, we find out that the Christian life is hardship and struggle and warfare and battle against sin, battle against the world, battle against the flesh, battle against the devil. And anything different, what we might could call breezy Christianity, that's the farce. That's the exception. That's weird. That should make you think, I'm not doing it right. If it's this easy, I've got it wrong because the place I'm living is antithetical to the God I serve. So we must expect sin and temptations to sin. If you go around a corner and there is no temptation to sin, you're fine. But if you round that corner having not prepared for the temptation and it is there, then you have prepared yourself to fail that test. We must expect the temptations to sin. We also must avoid temptations. Remember I said that temptations in the world often come in the world's people, possessions, pastimes, and power. These areas provide temptations to go against God's law, go against conscience, go against the conscience of another. With pastimes. We might know the right thing to do right now, but I just feel like doing this right now. We know the right thing to do and we don't do it. We sin. And very often, I would say most often, we all are aware that those situations, those people, those places, those times, we know where they are and the temptations they provide. We are aware of that. In other words, we go into it thinking, well, I remember how this went last time, but I'm going to do it again. We must avoid temptations to sin. In the last verse of this chapter, Paul says, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. What's he saying? He said, I would go so far as to eat no meat than to eat some meat if I knew it's going to help a brother or sister out. It's not worth it. It's not, even getting, it's not worth getting close Chapter 6, verse 18, he's speaking of sexual immorality. He says, flee sexual immorality. Run away from it. Don't even get close. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? You see the point? It's, it's absurd to think that you can get close to the fire without getting burned. You can't. It's, it's contrary to reality. It's the same with sin. Why would we imagine that we can get close to sin, close to temptations in the vicinity, and not get burned? It can't happen. Why would we play with it? Why would we risk it? We must labor to avoid temptations so that we can better avoid sin in all of its various forms. <clears throat> we must also remember why it's important that we understand sin 
and why there are so many categories, why so many caveats, so many different areas of sin that we have to avoid. We might begin to think, why is this so strict? There's just so much. Not only do I have to worry about God's law, but I've got to always do the right thing. I've got to worry about my conscience. I've got to worry about somebody else's conscience. Why so much? It's because we serve a holy God. In His separateness, He is most separate from us in our sin. It has no place in His presence. And as judge, He must deal with sin. And he must deal with it with perfect justice. He must deal with all of it completely and utterly. Every nook and cranny of sin, God must do away with. He must punish. Now that justice, that punishment takes place at one of two places. Calvary or hell. Either the Lord Jesus Christ bore your sins in His body on the tree or you will bear your sins in your body in the lake of fire. There's only two options. God is holy, but He's also merciful. And He's made a way of escape, not just of little temptations. He's made a way of escape from His wrath by sending His only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to make atonement for us. That's why there's so much detail that we must pay attention to when it comes to sin. Because God is that detailed when it comes to His holiness. But not only does God save sinners... But as we studied weeks ago, He chose us in Him, in Christ, that we would be holy and without blemish. So that's why understanding sin, expecting sin, avoiding sin is so crucial. He hasn't just saved us to send us to heaven. He saved us to make us holy, to make us into the image of Christ. And so if we have no inward inclination toward holiness within us, then we have no reason to believe that we have His Spirit. Christians desire to be holy. Christians desire to avoid sin. Christians say, preach two more weeks on sin so I can know more about it. That may be extreme. Christians long to comply with God's law. Christians are not burdened by God's law. Christians delight in the perfect standard of God. Why? Because they love God. And the law is a delineation of His character. So as we come to the Lord's table, I would ask, are you a Christian? Does this describe you? Jesus said, if you love me, then keep my commandments. Well, do you love Him? Do you long to be with Him? Do you take joy in communion with Him? Well, it's at the Lord's Supper, again, that we, by faith, commune with our Savior Christ by His Holy Spirit. So, as the elements are passed, examine yourself. Ask, really, in your heart, ask, am I a Christian?